Welcome to the Ortho Eval Pal Podcast, where we can help you build confidence with your orthopedic evaluation and management skills. We hope you enjoy the show. And now, for your host, Paul Marquis. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 38 of the Ortho Eval Pal Podcast. I'm your host, Paul Marquis, and today we have a special episode and uh, with a great guest, Dr. Nick Arredondo, who is a neurosurgeon from Maine Spine Surgery, and uh, he's going to be here to give us some tips on evaluating the cervical spine, looking at red flags, talking about some different other aspects of um, the cervical spine. Dr. Arredondo um, went to medical school at the University of Texas and um, also did his postgraduate work at the University. University of Florida. And uh, welcome, Dr. Arredondo. Thanks for being on my show. Uh, thank you, Paul. It's great to see you again. Um, now, I know it, it's you have a very busy schedule, and I really appreciate you taking the time to um, to get on the show. I find that for our viewers and, and for those listening to our podcast, it's very important to get a different perspective on how uh, we may evaluate or manage um, certain orthopedic issues. So, uh, you know, the, the, the premise to ortho eval pal is to um, bring some pearls out there to to help and guide people so it doesn't become so confusing so we make the right decisions at the right time and try to expedite you know the management of uh, folks with cervical spine dysfunction um, so that's that's kind of what uh, we're going to be talking about today and um, how how long you've been working with um, main spine surgery dr Arredondo? Well, I've been here about eight months now, and it's it's uh, it's quite lovely. I've been really enjoying it a lot, and uh, I got to say that the folks up in the county are tremendously lucky to have a resource like you and your organization up there uh, helping them get better. And I think you know one of the first pearls to think about is that you know when a patient walks into clinic, uh, they don't typically come uh, equipped with a sign hanging around their neck saying "I have a neck problem" or uh, "I have a shoulder problem" or uh, "I have a problem in my arm or my hand." And, and so I think, you know, the, in terms of pearls, trying to identify what key things we want to pay attention to in order to think about spinal disease as a potential cause of their symptoms. Uh, the other thing, you know, we talk about red flags, things that you might be worried about on a patient so that you might expedite their evaluation and treatment. You know, anything that involves a, a serious neurologic symptom, anything that involves profound weakness, uh, profound numbness, uh, or any other bodily dysfunction, really, especially in terms of the neck, we're, we're looking at, at the fact that that spinal cord can actually affect pretty much every bodily function below the neck. And so that's, that's I think, really the first thing to think about. Um, and as we've talked about before, you know, the, the body is uh, tremendously complex. And while we have a pretty good understanding of some of the simple mechanical issues in the neck, there are a tremendous number of physiologic issues that are a little bit more uh, opaque, and they, they can be somewhat difficult to tease through. And so I think, you know, as, we, as we're looking at a patient, the first thing to try to understand is, you know, what's the source of this issue, and, and is it something that's a structural mechanical issue, or is there some other systemic issue ongoing? Right, right. I know that uh, when they come in, I, I think the important thing is to ask the right questions right out of the block um, to make sure that you can tease some of these things out just in the subjective portion of your eval without even touching them. 
Um, and, you know, asking things like, you know, paresthesias, do you have any tingling or numbness going down your arm? Well, you know, rotator cuff tears and shoulder injuries don't typically cause paresthesias down the arm. Um, so we need to really be thinking either neurological or vascular, um, you know, and, and when you get the tingling down your arm, does it follow a specific pattern? Is it just the index finger and thumb? Or is it the whole hand, which is more of a vascular type issue? So just asking those questions, I think, can be really instrumental in in, in going forward with this patient so that you can kind of cut your evaluation from a one-hour evaluation down to 10 to 15 minutes and really get to business. Yeah, I agree wholeheartedly. And and I think there are many, many great uh Clinicians before us have pointed out that the patient will tell you what's going on if you take the time to listen to them. And obviously, a, a good physical exam with, with some specificity of exactly what is the anatomic pattern of distribution of the symptoms, not just tingling into the hand. Well, the hand has a number of components. Is this a dorsal? Is this uh, in, in the, the small finger, the small uh, digit, or is this in the thumb? You know, what, what exactly are we looking at? And um, you know, the issue is, as, as you know, a lot of the symptoms we're dealing with are very common. People have these problems all the time. Right, right. Now, um, as far as other red flags out there, are there any other, you know, uh, symptoms that we should really be watching out for? Now, I know that some people will have a loss of balance or incoordination. Um, what about uh, urinary uh, incontinence and, uh, and bowel and bladder issues? Are those things that we should um, ask during a cervical spine evaluation and why? Yeah, I think absolutely. You know, classically, we're trained that you have to be aware of cauda equina syndrome when we're evaluating lumbar patients. But I think that you can easily also get symptoms that are very similar and, and uh, represent significant compromise of the spinal cord when you're evaluating cervical patients as well, and even thoracic. So absolutely. And, and the issue is, goes beyond just the tremendous impact that that kind of dysfunction has on quality of life. Uh, the reality is that that's one of the, the few true emergencies when it comes to uh, spinal disease is that we, we have very few hours to try to correct a mechanical issue that's causing that kind of a syndrome. And uh, once those a few hours uh, pass, then unfortunately, it's no longer an emergency. It clearly still needs to be treated promptly. But um, so that's that's really an important factor. And, you know, I think clearly any kind of red flag would be this patient that's had a significant mechanical trauma uh, you know, motor vehicle accident, fall from a ladder, anything that would suggest a, a big event that would apply a tremendous force to their body, that's something that you know, needs to be evaluated very promptly. Uh, alternatively, if you have a patient that comes in and says that in addition to having strange pain, numbness, weakness, etc., they're doing things like they can't swallow anything or they're throwing everything back up or they're losing uh, 20 pounds in a month, uh, you know, we start to worry. Uh, you know, unfortunately, today I just met a nice man who uh, uh, has a tumor in his neck, and that's that's how his cancer presented. And you know, it showed up as neck pain. You can't see the tumor on the X-ray, but it's there. And uh, so, unfortunately, we worry about that kind of stuff. And alternatively, if you have a patient that has uh, fevers and they just uh, something else is going on, they're having fevers, chills, sweats all the time. They just feel lousy but their predominant complaint is their neck pain. Well, you can get an infection in there as well. And that, that can be really problematic and very serious as well. And all those things require very prompt treatment. 
Yeah. Um, now, while we're talking about, you know, these, these surgically urgent issues, let's talk a little bit about what type of patient and what do the signs and symptoms need to be before a, um, a, a PA or a FNP, physical therapist, occupational therapist, uh, or a family physician, what does it take for us to send that patient to your office? Um, you know, there are a lot of things I, I too often times I, I see somebody who is sent to your office and I've been working with you folks for over 25 years and have learned what type of patient needs to be seen surgically urgent and who not, doesn't need to be seen surgically. Who should be treated conservatively versus be referred to your office? Yeah, absolutely. You know, uh, absent those worrisome signs that we and, and findings that we just talked about, um, I, I think it really, unfortunately, the landscape of medicine has really changed a lot. Um, there was a period of time with the introduction of the MRI that people really felt that there finally was a definitive test that was going to give them all the answers to their questions. And unfortunately, you know, the path of least resistance resulted in uh, people using that probably in excess. And um, so now as a result, it's quite difficult to sometimes convince an insurance company to pay for an MRI. Uh, and that's probably appropriate because I think a lot of the times, you know, most of these situations, uh, the body is built for healing and it will have a high probability of healing. And I think one of the, the things that y'all do particularly well up there is, is help people tap into that ability to, to let their body heal and to help them in the process of it. So, you know, I wish I could give you a simple answer. I think the, the reality is that if you have significant clinical concern for a patient, we're happy to evaluate them and we'll take a look and we'll figure out what, what needs to happen. Um, that said, we see a lot of patients that don't really need a surgeon. Um, and that's good news because we don't really want to be having everybody have spine surgery. That right. That's probably not good for society either. So, uh, I think, um, you know, these days, and I, I expect the landscape will continue to change over time, uh, it just gets harder and harder to get the advanced imaging. And and so really, I would say, you know, what is the, your clinical concern? How worried are you for the symptoms? How serious are the symptoms? You know, what's the pattern? Is this something that's been ongoing for 20 years and is about the same as it was last year? Well, maybe you could take a little time and, and uh, spend, have them spend some time with a physical therapist or any other modality that you want to give a try to, I think it's not unreasonable. On the other hand, if you have somebody that had a fall a day or two ago and they have this progressive weakness and now they can't lift their arm over their head, well, that's probably a big worry and we should, we should really evaluate them soon. Right. Right. It was interesting because I just recently had a gentleman who had an MRI approximately one month ago and uh, it, with symptoms of radicular pain down the leg. And uh, and I know this is getting away from the cervical spine, but this is just talks about diagnostic imaging and when it's important. And, uh, you know, it, it was tolerable. The MRI came back perfectly clear, no signs of nerve root compression. One month later, the gentleman has intractable pain. He ends up in the emergency room. Um, I take a look at him. He has significant new weakness. Um, so we asked to get a new MRI, but it was, I think the way we got that MRI quickly, one month later after the other one, was that we clearly talked about the red flags that he had significant weakness into dorsiflexion, a significant straight leg raise test, loss of sensation, um, and loss of balance, 
actually the leg was giving way. Um, so we were able to get a new MRI and that new MRI showed a significant herniation um, of a disc that was just starting to prolapse before, but now completely extruded. And I, I think that, you know, it really comes back to why do people not get better? Okay. And it comes down to doing a good clinical exam. And the number one reason people don't get better is because they're inappropriately diagnosed. And I think clinically, we need to step back and improve our clinical evaluation skills so that we can kind of tease these things out and make the proper decisions and manage these patients um, a little bit differently. And so I think, you know, I, I think that that evaluation is super important. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, and I think in particular with regard to the cervical spine, you, we have to keep in mind that pain in the neck uh, does not necessarily portend terrible things from a structural mechanical perspective. In other words, the joint functioning can actually be quite good in spite of a sometimes impressive amount of pain. Pain is a very difficult thing, and uh, oftentimes the sources of the pain are not structural. They don't actually correlate with any of the findings that we, that we find either on, on any of the objective testing. Uh, you know, on the other hand, there can be some pretty significant spinal disease present in the absence of neck pain. And uh, in particular, we talk about the syndrome of cervical myelopathy, where the average time to diagnosis in one study in particular was shown to be over two years from the onset of symptoms simply because of the absence of neck pain. And even even there can be symptoms like lumbar pain or lumbar radicular symptoms. And so I, I think that we have to keep that in mind uh, when we're trying to evaluate these patients. And as I said, and as you pointed out, it's, it's a challenging process. This is not a simple uh, area of the body. You know, we're dealing essentially with the central nervous system, and that's, that's complex. On the other hand, I think if we follow simple principles, we can expedite and streamline things. And we want to do that simply because if you allow a patient to continue with, for example, radicular pains for an extended period of time, well, they will eventually start to develop weakness, atrophy, and even loss of sensation. And unfortunately, the possibility is there that they may not ever fully recover that function. Uh, so I, I think that, you know, making sure that we uh, pay attention as the patients are telling us what it is that's bothering them, we have, to, we have to unfortunately keep that in mind, not just in the context of their physiologic being, but also in the context of their social experience, because it turns out that all these symptoms are going to be worse when your cat runs away, when your dog dies, when, you know, some terrible thing happens. Absolutely. It's just going to get harder. So, uh, you know, I, I can't tell you how many times I've had a, you know, a nice gentleman come in, uh, you know, one month into being a widower that uh, all of a sudden his chronic back pain that's been there for 20 years is much, much worse. Well, uh, you know, I'm certainly not going to recommend any kind of surgery at that time. We need to get through the healing process first. Yeah, I actually do a podcast uh, that's going to be coming up really soon. Um, or actually, I, I just did it. And it's uh, going to be lined up here. And it's going to be on fibromyalgia and all those other factors that really play into this. So that's very important as us uh, practitioners to understand the, the psychosocial aspect of a patient's life when evaluating them for these problems. Now, I have a, I have a couple of questions for you, and I didn't send these to you ahead of time. Um, no. But I want your thought on this. Um, let's say somebody herniates a disc and they have an extrusion there. Um, does everybody who has a herniated disc need to have surgery? And number two, um, will the body over time reabsorb that disc material that's extruded? 
Yeah. And, you know, you ask about the who gets better and why doesn't everybody get better? You know, the real one of the mysteries of the body is that some people demonstrate a tremendous capacity to heal even fairly large disc herniations, both in the neck and the lower back. Uh, and they do this spontaneously. And the natural history of, of disc herniation is that it does improve. You know, 85% of the time, if we follow a patient for about two years, we're going to see them do great. The problem is that during that two years, we have other obligations. You got to go to work. You, you got to mow the lawn. You got to keep doing regular things. And so a lot of people don't tolerate that without waiting around for that sort of thing. And that's where I think starting with things like physical therapy, uh, doing gentle traction, uh, that can really provide a lot of improvement in a fairly short period of time. And it's hard work. It takes patience and dedication, and you got to keep doing it. Nobody else can do it for you. Right. But follow through with that. There is a high probability that beginning usually around six weeks in, you'll see significant improvement. Now, as to exactly why is it that some people get better and other people don't get better, you know, there's a lot of factors that go into it. And I think some of them are mechanical and some of them have to do with, is this a, uh, an explosion of very uh, uh, low density, fibrous uh, disc material with a lot of clot and blood and that kind of thing? Or is this actually a chunk of cartilage which has broken off the end plate and is sticking into the spinal canal? You know, that makes a difference. Uh, the other issue, some people seem to spontaneously heal on their own, and um, they the, the disc just uh, seems to get resorbed. Other people, instead of actually resorbing the disc, seem to have this physiologic reaction of laying down this calcium, which essentially creates a kind of a bony outgrowth, and that ends up permanently narrowing the spaces where the nerves run, which in and of itself may not be a terrible thing, but combined with other joint issues and other narrowing may may result in a progressive syndrome that eventually, as they get older, can create pinching of the nerves. So uh, it's a bit of a mystery yet, but I think that, again, starting off with a, a good, strong, initial conservative effort to help them let their body heal, that's really the best thing. And assuming, of course, they don't have any of those red flags we talked about, it's a very reasonable thing to do. And one of the concerns is that, you know, if you all of a sudden jump to MRI and it's reassuring you want to get the MRI, you want to have that and be able to say, okay, I didn't miss something. Um, the problem is once we get an MRI, we have to think about what does it really mean? And, and putting together the MRI with the uh, patient's syndrome, it may seem straightforward, but it, sometimes it's a little bit more challenging than that. Um, and many times we find that patients have findings on the radiographic images that really don't have any clinical significance. And uh, sometimes that's a little bit of a conversation to try to convince them that, in fact, having a disc bulge is not associated with terrible things. Right. So that's, a, that's one of the other factors we got to consider. Yes. Yes. Uh, let me ask uh, you ask another you question. Um, if we're talking about a nerve root impingement, is there a particular nerve root, let's say between C5 and T1, that you are more concerned with? Now, I, I do a pretty good job at teasing out which nerve root is affected. I have a special test that I developed called the Marquee Maneuver that I utilize, um, and I'm actually doing a podcast about that, and I have videos about it on my YouTube channel. Um, and, and I can really nail down which nerve root is most affected when it's isolated to one level. Now, is there a nerve root that is, let's say, wimpier than the others, 
or are there nerve roots that you are more concerned with? Like you see like a C5 controls the deltoids and, and it um, controls the biceps and supinator. Are there certain nerve roots that, that are being impinged that you might say, you know what, I think we probably should tackle this neurosurgically sooner than others? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. You know, I, I think uh, that a little bit of it has to do with the, the patient's specific experience and, and the severity of the symptoms. But I think classically in, in training, uh, surgically, we always worry about C5 as somehow being a little bit more delicate and able to uh, be uh, profoundly affected by what seems like otherwise relatively minor injury. Um, fortunately, most of those patients do very well with time and do get better, but it certainly affects all of your functioning if you have trouble lifting your arm um, above your waist. Uh, so it's, it's, that's a big one. I, you know, I think from my perspective, I worry a lot about C7 just because of the fact that it really helps people's functioning of their hands. And uh, as anybody who's ever had some of this uh, type of a problem, not being able to use your hand well, particularly if it's your dominant hand, that's a big quality of life impact. And um, so, yeah, those are the two that I think I would really single out. But the reality is that every single one of them is, is of concern. And, um, you know, fortunately, we see that's the majority of what we see are people who have some compromise of the structure that allows the nerve to become pinched, as people say, and, and compressed. And uh, the good news is those nerves are, are delicate, but they are resilient. And if you give them time, you get the pressure off and you do it in a timely fashion, they have a high probability of doing very well. Yep. Great. Um, and another question I have for you is when considering doing surgery on somebody, like they, they come in, they have significant neural compromise, loss of strength, maybe a loss of reflex, loss of sensation, significant radiculopathy. And how much do you take into consideration if a patient is a smoker versus a non-smoker, maybe how much they smoke in regards to um, the type of surgery that you do, or if you even do surgery at all? Yeah, that's a great question too. Yeah, smoking's smoking's not good for you. I think that's a newsflash there. Um, <laughs> you know, it's funny. I had a professor of surgery, uh, Carlos Pastana. He was a remarkable guy, still is. But he uh, he used to like to say that there were two species of humans on the planet. Uh, one was the non-diabetic, and the other is the diabetic. And it, it's because a, a systemic disease like that can really affect outcome profoundly. And it can affect healing and how people do. And, and it's true, diabetes does impact on how people do in, in spinal surgery as well. But smoking is, is very similar in that regard. And, and it's, a, it's a tough thing. I feel bad for people who smoke because it's not easy to give it up. And it's not a judgment. You know, it's, uh, we have, everybody has uh, their own issues and we all get through things somehow. And, you know, coping mechanisms differ. And maybe it's not the best coping mechanism. But once you're there, uh, getting out of it is really tough. But absolutely, I tell them that your risk of complication, and not just any one particular complication, but every complication, is anywhere from two to ten times higher. And uh, yeah, that's bad. But uh, most of the time, when we're talking about surgery on the neck, we're really looking at pretty significant issues that are going to have big uh, impact on quality of life in the long term. So. We still are, are, are willing to consider surgery for people who are smoking. Uh, that's not always true in the lumbar spine, uh, but in the cervical spine it is. But yes, every, every 
every potential complication from infection to swallowing trouble to bleeding to uh, bone healing, all of that really is very negatively impacted. And, and the reality is that when somebody comes and they've been smoking for 20 years and they've got a bad neck and they blame uh, their dog for knocking them over and hitting, they injured their neck, it's not the dog's fault. The reality is that that smoking has negatively impacted their bone and joint health for many, many years. And it, it's, a, it's a cumulative process. And that's, that's the reason that they're having trouble. Yeah. And I, you know, I have a talk with patients and I, and I have a very serious talk with them about smoking, especially if I see them early on, I'm trying to manage them conservatively. And I'm thinking down the road, they may potentially need surgery. Um, I, I talk to them about, you know, the lack of oxygen to those tissues, the, the, disc in the spine really starts to become less vascular over time anyway. Um, so why would we want to decrease the amount of oxygen that your spine gets? Um, and then with, you know, 26 years of experience treating hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of uh, post-op cervical spine and lumbar spine patients, I do find that um, those who smoke and those who smoke a little bit more than others, the recoveries are a lot longer. It's difficult for us to get them into cardiovascular exercises and we can't get them moving as quickly. Um, and, and, and it just takes so much longer to, uh, to recover. And so I really encourage those folks to, you know, uh, start a, a smoking cessation class or doing whatever they can to at least decrease the amount of smoking that they do to optimize their outcome and quality of life. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Everything you said is 100% right on. And the problem is that the nicotine, that particular ingredient that makes it so hard to get rid of, is really good at relieving anxiety. And uh, there's another great way to induce anxiety, and that's to introduce somebody to a spine surgeon who's talking about operating on them. So it's a challenging situation for sure. But it, absolutely, the sooner they quit, the better they're going to do. And yeah. if, you're, if you have a patient who's, who you think has got some spinal issues, the best decision they can make is to quit. And you're, as a practitioner, as, you're, as a clinician, being able to help them in that process is absolutely essential. Yeah. Great. Well, all right. Uh, now I'd like to take a little break so we can hear a word from our uh, sponsor. Thanks. Did you know that over 90% of foot and ankle problems are caused by a tight calf muscle? Introducing the Easy Slant, a durable, adjustable, and portable calf stretching device. The Easy Slant was designed to increase stretching compliance and get you back on your feet and feeling better, faster. So if you work with patients seeking to ease or avoid foot pain or clients who want to improve their athletic performance, look no further. Visit easyslant.com to learn more or order yours today. Enter coupon code OEP for a 10% discount on your first Easy Slant. Welcome back and thank you for being with us. And uh, again, thank you, Dr. Arredondo, for uh, taking the time to uh, spend with us. I still have uh, a few more questions for you, if you don't mind, and uh, we'll we'll uh, walk through those. And if any of you folks out there have questions for myself or Dr. Arredondo, um, you can always get in touch with me at uh, orthoevalpal.com and go to the Get in Touch page. And uh, that will... Uh, hook you up to our uh, podcast. So you get podcasts uh, sent out to you on a regular basis. We do them every Tuesday. And if you have questions, I can forward them to Dr. Arredondo and we can have a discussion and help you sort through uh, some of those questions that you might have. Um, so again, thank you for being with us. Now, the other day, uh, we both had a, a common patient and, um, you know, he had come in 
He had significant radiculopathy in his arm, also having a lot of discomfort down in his left leg. And so we uh, we sent him down to you. You did surgery on him, and I met him a couple of weeks after surgery, and he said, Paul, he says, you're not going to believe this, but as soon as I woke up, it was the first time in six months that I did not have pain in my arm and my neck, but I also had less pain in my leg. And he says, my, my leg pain has gone away. He said, I feel better all over. Um, can you give some explanation why this would have gone down past the waist and given him some relief there? Or is it just um, coincidence? Uh, yeah, you know, uh, he, he just had an excellent physical therapist, I think. Uh, <laughs> you know, it turns out that the, as we talked about when in thinking about myelopathy, which is essentially the syndrome of mild spinal cord injury, that occurs uh, with a sort of a chronic and degenerative style uh, impact on the cervical cord, uh, that in fact, leg symptoms like a radicular, a lumbar radicular symptom are not that uncommon. The one study put it at about 13% of the time. So, you know, what it kind of opens my eyes a little bit because that gentleman, although he had some impressive weakness, and if I remember it was a C7 primarily, you know, that's something that, um, you know, I expected. Uh, I actually also expected him to kind of have some lumbar issues because he's a big, burly, physical guy who works hard and has done a lot of uh, uh, traumatic and forceful things in his life. And, and when you have issues in your neck, it's a reasonable conjecture that you're going to have issues in your lower back, too. It's the same spine. But uh, so I'm pleasantly surprised to hear that he was uh, improving. But at the same time, I'm, I'm also concerned because what it means is that essentially he has some component of myelopathy. And, and myelopathy is a, is a tough uh, diagnosis. It's a tough disease. Uh, it unfortunately does not respond well to, to non-physical uh, interaction. In other words, if you, if you give a patient medication, that's not going to make their myelopathy get better. You can realign their chakras and uh, uh, cleanse their auras all you want, but that's not going to improve their, their compression of the cord. Um, it, it unfortunately requires a surgical intervention, but the, the problem is, again, it's not like there is a, a binary on-off switch. I think that there is a spectrum of very mild and progressive uh, disorder, and I think he had a very mild myelopathy because he didn't have any of the reflex changes we would expect. He didn't have any of the other physical findings, you know, the so-called Hoffman's or what people call a Babinski's or an extensor plantar response. Uh, no clonus in his in his legs, no spasticity, rigidity, uh, no fasciculations, nothing to point to to say, oh, this is really severe. Those findings really a lot of times are very late in the disease. He also wasn't complaining about balance and coordination. He was complaining about pain in his neck and pain in his arm and shoulder. But in any event, I think, uh, you know, that's the sort of thing that we have to keep in mind. And it's easy when we have somebody telling us it's my neck to think about their neck. But we have to keep in mind that if somebody's having a lot of complaints of lower back issues and there's really not much going on down there from a mechanical structural perspective, it's reasonable to think about their neck as well. Uh, Some of the MRI centers in particular have recognized this and they'll do a survey sequence of the neck just to kind of get an idea of what's what's up there. One of my favorite stories is uh, I had a nice young lady uh, who came to me because she was having a tremendous amount of back pain. And uh, when I examined her, I, 
found out she was profoundly myelopathic. She had, uh, you know, positive Hoffman cross adductor reflexes. And in talking to her, I found out that, you know, for about a year, she had been seeing a psychiatrist. Uh, because about a year prior, she went to her family doctor and said, just all of a sudden, I feel like my body is not my own. Um, wasn't having any pain, wasn't having any weakness, wasn't having any other real problems, just didn't feel quite right. Couldn't put it into words more eloquently than that. And so her family doctor said, well, yeah, you should probably go see a psychiatrist because that sounds crazy. So she very dutifully saw the psychiatrist, worked through her issues, talked about her mom and all that, but just never got over that feeling. Well, when I found out that, and then she started complaining of back pain, so she sent to me, and I was happy to see her, and found she was myopathic. We took an MRI of her neck, and sure enough, there was a giant disc herniation at C5, C6, compressing her cord, core signal chains, the whole thing. We uh, did a surgery, a little disc arthroplasty, worked out great. She got a lot better. All of a sudden, her body was her own again, yeah, uh, and her back pain went away. So, absolutely, it was, it was one of those things that um, you know it happens. It's maybe not the everyday case, but we have to be aware that that kind of thing can occur. And there are even uh, practitioners, and um, gosh, I can't recall the name of the gentleman in Seattle, but it, there are uh, discussions that some patients like uh, that are diagnosed with fibromyalgia actually may in fact have what essentially is a very mild form of myelopathy. And it's this repetitive cervical percussion syndrome where the cervical cord gets mildly compressed on a repetitive fashion that leads to symptoms associated with uh, fibromyalgia type syndrome. I'm not saying everybody with fibromyalgia has that, and I don't think he would either, but it's it's a, one of the things in the spectrum of what we see. And so it, it's uh, it makes us pause and think, uh, you know, don't don't discount things and don't just say, oh, you've got fibromyalgia. There's nothing to do. Uh, further investigation can sometimes be warranted. Right, right. My cervical spine evaluations always include a Hoffman's test, testing Babinski, um, checking for clonus and uh, looking for hyperreflexia. And uh, episode 34 that I had done just previous to these, um, I, I go through all of those and we talk about cervical myelopathy and what they mean and how to perform the tests and what the tests mean and kind of what direction you should go in um, when you see these types of findings. So I will leave that at that. But if you are interested in, in understanding myelopathy a little bit better, I do uh, a, a podcast and it's episode 34. And uh, so so you uh, should check that out. Now, many, many people spend a lot of money and a lot of time getting x-rays of the cervical spine. And can you talk to me a little bit about why having a cervical spine flexion and extension x-ray is so important and meaningful to you as a neurosurgeon when uh, they do the flexion and extension with a lateral view? Absolutely. Yeah. You know, uh, so x-rays are a uh, a cost-effective way to get an evaluation of the structure of the spine. And if, if you get a set of x-rays on somebody and, and there is very clear abnormal alignment uh, or bony uh, dysfunction, then that, that really can raise your in clinical index of suspicion to think maybe it's reasonable to proceed with more advanced and expensive imaging. But an x-ray is cheap and relatively easy to get. There's a lot of places and ways to do it. And I think one of the things that's interesting is historically, 
people have used the uh, oblique views where uh, essentially the patient holds still and the the technician uh, will uh, circle around them with a variety of different angles in order to capture the foramen and the facets and that sort of thing. And I think that prior to CT and MR, uh, that was probably a very useful modality. But now that we have those other modalities, a, a, a dynamic set of x-rays where you actually are having the patient flex their neck forward under their own power and extend their, their neck back again under their own power, um, it's a relatively safe thing that isn't going to create a, a lot of issue. They might complain of a little bit of discomfort as they do it, but it's not likely to cause them permanent long-term harm. And what it does show us, if they can actually give us a reasonable excursion, is how are the joints functioning in the neck? And in other words, is there a translational listhesis? Is there a motion of one joint, one bone over the other? And, and the issue to think about is that a large translational listhesis in the, in the cervical spine can actually result in pretty significant narrowing and stenosis of the spinal canal. And that can potentially predispose people to have issues from spinal cervical myelopathy. So again, I think uh, it's, it's, you know, just a good idea to, to get into the habit of thinking about simple things and simple uh, things you can do to rule in or rule out. And I think a set of x-rays is a reasonable thing. The static images, just looking at you straight on and from the side, that eh, doesn't give you a whole lot of information. Once you add those two extra shots, a flexion shot and extension shot, now you can actually see not just what is the overall bony morphology, but you can actually see the movement and the function of the joints. So you may not get every patient to participate. If somebody's got really terrible neck pain, they're not going to be able to move their neck very far. That's okay. But it's still a reasonable thing to think about and I think can provide a lot of insight. Uh, and I, you know, I don't know that having somebody get all the oblique views these days is really all that essential. I, I, yeah, it certainly doesn't hurt. Uh, maybe a little bit of additional radiation, but it's not a, a large amount of radiation. But it is, it's something to think about, and it's additional cost. that probably has a fairly low clinical utility. Right, right. All right, here's a tough one for you. And I know we don't have a lot of time. I have a million questions, um, and uh, but uh, we'll keep uh, probably just a couple more questions. Um, have you ever had difficulty identifying the difference between a cervical nerve root issue and a rotator cuff problem? Oh, gosh. <laughs> yeah. You know, so... Uh, you know these these and these these uh, these creatures travel together, don't they? Yeah. You know it's interesting because I see not infrequently that people have both, um, and I think that the mechanism is that if you have a, a mild chronic irritation of a cervical root, then you can end up with actually uh, a progressive uh, weakness of the the shoulder girdle, and that weakness predisposes the shoulder to dysfunction. And once you start to have a dysfunctional joint, then more injury is actually more likely. So yes, uh, it is a real diagnostic challenge. Um, and I don't think that it's easy. I, I think, uh, you know, if you talk to 10 different surgeons, uh, you'll get uh, 15 different answers. Um, yeah, the hard and fast is really hard to point to. I think that when you deal with profound weakness, when you deal with profound numbness, you, you are going to be more predisposed to think about a, a root issue, a, a nerve issue. Uh, but if you're really uh, seeing pain only with motion of the shoulder and it's isolated to the area of the shoulder and it is uh, associated with a profound tenderness of uh, whether it's the AC or the glenohumeral or the bicipital groove, any of those little targets, 
that's that's something that I think I would look a little bit more to the shoulder. But the reality is that we don't, we're not like a, a GMC, uh, uh, you know, pickup. We can't just pop the alternator in and fix it with one little thing. A lot of times, dysfunction in the neck is associated with dysfunction in the shoulder. And we just have to prioritize and think about what's the bigger issue. Right. And I think that it can go just the other way around also. If a person has a rounded shoulder posture and a forward head posture, um, you know, it, first of all, that causes a lot of impingement in the shoulder. But in order to look up and communicate with people, you need to hyperextend that neck a little bit more when you have a rounded shoulder posture. So I think that it can go either way that you can have the nerve root compression cause weakness in the shoulder and cause shoulder dysfunction. But you can also have a tight chest and weak periscapular muscles and then end up with poor neck posture. So almost, um, you know, I, I would say 100% of our patients uh, pre-surgically and post-surgically for cervical spine go through a postural program. We get those shoulders back, head up over the shoulders, and we try to open up those framing by, by developing better deep cervical spine strength. And I, I think it helps both. And so we really uh, make it a point to optimize that posture, but it's very, very difficult to tease out. And actually uh, episode, I think 35 that I have talks about tips and tricks and pearls on how to identify one over the other. And then uh, I developed a test also that helps to uh, tease that out also even better. And so it can be very, very challenging, but very rewarding when you can sort them out. And sometimes you have both, but um, that, that, you know, that can be difficult to treat also. Yeah. And you, you're, you've got an excellent series there and I, I congratulate you for putting this together. The, the, the reality is that even with the fancy electrodiagnostics of a nerve conduction study or electromyography, even that's not a definitive test. I mean, you know, and we can have patients with a radiculitis that is not electrodiagnostically evident. And, and so it's really, it is a challenge. And if you think about their overall spinal alignment, uh, absolutely what happens in the, in the buttock at the gluteal muscle level, what happens in the lumbar spine does affect the neck. And if you have a patient that has poor uh, sagittal balance where they're keeping their chest uh, you know, really far forward over their pelvis, their head is naturally going to come forward. And as you mentioned, that rounded, uh, you know, in the extreme form of the dowager's hump, that's something that that absolutely will predispose them to more issues. And, you know, I guess the long term, what we want to do is keep patients where we can keep their ear over their shoulders or their shoulders over their pelvis. And that has to do with activity. It has to do with taking the time to invest time, energy and effort into keeping their body functioning well. And that's really one of the big takeaways. The closest we ever come to curing anybody of spinal issues that are degenerative uh, it's the effort the patient puts into it. It's exercise, and, and right. that's really the key. Yes. Do you have time for one more question? Absolutely. Yeah, go ahead. All right. So cervical disc replacement in the cervical spine. Um, can you talk a little bit about you know, who's a candidate for the cervical disc replacement? What is the benefit of having it over an uh, anterior cervical fusion? And um, if you could just chat real quickly about uh, why you would uh, do one over the other, uh, that'd be great. Yeah. You bet. Yeah. So uh, cervical fusion has been around for a long time and it works fairly well to eliminate a joint that has become dysfunctional. And uh, the issue with it is that unfortunately it immobilizes that joint. And as a result, it creates a little bit of additional mechanical force on the joints above and below it. 
And so as a result, uh, we've developed these artificial discs, which are really not artificial discs. They're motion preservation devices. And uh, there are, I think, seven of them now that are FDA approved, and there are more coming. Uh, and the issue is that they allow the joint to be essentially uh, repaired to some degree, but uh, the motion that's left is not perfectly physiologic. It's not returning them to their uh, God-made state. But I think that it does allow patients, particularly more active patients and patients who have an otherwise fairly well-functioning uh, spine to uh, enjoy the benefits of having a decompression and, and uh, you know, more, a fairly extensive one at that joint without uh, suffering from the long-term effects of effusion. Now, the catch of that is that, unfortunately, these devices are relatively new, although you can go back to 1955 and find that there were people working on them then. These devices, really, that are being used today have not that uh, degree of experience. And so I think that, um, you know, I, I can't tell somebody who's in their 40s that they have an artificial disc that when you're 80, it's going to be perfect. Um, and that's that's really what gets to the crux of the issue. If we're trying to decide between one or the other, both are very good options. It has to do with patient's risk uh, profile. How do they like risk? Do they like the known evil of fusion where you end up, we've got a very well-characterized system, we've got extensive data, we could go on for weeks and weeks talking about all the findings and all the data and all the studies, but uh, in the end, there is this additional risk of adjacent segment issues, and that has to do with the risk for more surgery. On the other hand, you've got the artificial disc, which is a little bit of an unknown. How is it going to behave 20, 30, 40 years from now? We don't know. Nobody knows for sure. But it seems on the preliminary data that we have so far that these devices are doing very well. There have been a couple that have had some hiccups, but I think that, that most of the mechanics are now fairly well understood. So in the end, I, I think it's good for patients that are active. It's good for patients that are healthy. It's good for patients that have a relatively normal spinal uh, morphology and that have good facet joints so that, that are able to continue to function well. Other people who have really severe disease and uh, bad uh, joint function or instability, uh, they're not going to do well with an artificial disc, at least none of the devices we have at this point. Right, right. Well, this has been absolutely awesome. I I just can't thank you enough for all the information you've given us. And I hope that uh, for our listeners that they've uh, taken away a few things today that can can make the evaluation process a little more streamlined and um, have a better understanding and really more confidence in what to do when making a recommendation for your patients who have, you know, a spinal cord or, or cervical spine uh, injuries or uh, symptoms that, uh, you know, are are kind of up in the air and you're trying to figure out what to do with them. So hopefully you'll feel more confident evaluating your patients and managing them, not just necessarily treating them, but knowing where to send them, when to send them. And, uh, you know, I hope that we can keep the right types of patients in the neurosurgical office and like like with us, um, we are an outpatient sports and orthopedics physical therapy clinic. Um, we, we don't do very well with things like lymphedema and wound care and pediatrics. Um, those types of patients go to clinics where therapists do a very good job with those. Um, so we hope to uh, make sure that uh, neurosurgeons get the right types of patients in their office to take care of the right uh, people at the right time. And that uh, when patients are treated conservatively, they go through the proper management management. 
um, before they end up in the neurosurgical office. And uh, we, we really exhaust those conservative managements without causing injury to the patient and um, long-term, you know, nerve damage or issues like that. So I, I think that uh, we really got a lot of that in a little uh, amount of time. We could probably do an eight-hour lecture on this. And I've actually done some lectures on uh, C-spine and shoulder uh, dysfunction that uh, CME lectures that take about seven or eight hours, but uh, that's for another time. So if you folks have any uh, questions, again, please contact me at Orthway Valpal. And uh, Dr. Erdondo, anything you want to add before we get done today? Oh, uh, you know, Paul, I just want to thank you for uh, having me on here. And I, I want to congratulate you again on the excellent job that you and your team are doing, not just in putting these these podcasts together, but also in, in treating the patients up there. And I, I really think that the reality is that part of the reason there are so many specialties and so many different types of clinical experts that are dealing with these issues is that it's tremendously complex and no one specialty has all the answers. So we have to work together as a team and the best way to do that is through communication and I applaud you for facilitating that and helping everybody learn a little bit more about it. Thank you very much. Well, thank you for uh, being on the show and uh, maybe at some point in the future we'll, uh, we'll do something else on a different topic. Absolutely. We could even keep going on this one. That's right. All uh -huh. right, Dr. Erdondo, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. And um, thank you all of uh, to all the listeners. And uh, please um, make sure that if you have any feedback for us, you go to iTunes and leave a rating and review. I would greatly appreciate that. We'd like to know how we're doing. And, um, you know, if there's anything we could be doing better, we'd certainly like to do that for you. So again, have a great day until our next episode. Take care. We hope you've enjoyed the show. For some more awesome content, go to orthoevalpal.com. Can't wait to see you there.